Hey, I'm John Harwood, your host for CNBC's Speakeasy podcast. In this episode, a conversation with the man who could end up running an impeachment effort against President Trump. He's Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He's battled Trump for years, but never with stakes this high. Are you enjoying the responsibility that uh, you now have in this situation? I don't know if I'd say I enjoy it. It's I'm in the right or wrong place at the right or wrong time. Um, you've got to do your job. You've got to do your duty. In one sense, I've prepared for it in my entire life because my motivation in getting involved in politics, going back to when I was 12 years old, uh, my f- was protecting civil liberties. And I remember reading newspaper stories when I was 12, 11 or 12, about uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, that infuriated me, uh, upholding uh, convictions based on, uh, on confessions that were physically beaten out of prisoners. I remember getting very angry and saying, I have to do something about this. Unlike many people in Congress, you actually have experience from the 1980s in confronting Donald Trump or disagreeing with Donald Trump. What did you learn from that experience? I didn't actually learn that much because we didn't have very much personal contact at all. I think I met him two or three times personally. Uh, but he threw, you know, he threw a lot of money and political influence around, and uh, uh, he wanted to get get his way. And I battled him because I disagreed with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he called you names, and yeah, I don't really remember that. He, he may have. Um, I, 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 but, but, the but story I read said he called he, he called you Fat Jerry. Yeah, yeah, but was it at that time or later? I don't remember. He he, when he first proposed this gargantuan project. Uh, everybody opposed it, and uh, I was one of the everybody's. I mean, all the local legislators, every every community group. It wasn't just opposed. you. Oh no, everybody opposed it. It was it was a ridiculous 150-story building surrounded by seven Chrysler buildings plus television. It, it was ridiculous, and uh, uh, I thought the design was grotesque too. But that's beside the point. It was much too big, etc. Universal opposition to it. Uh, then, and this was from 1985 to 91. In 91, a compromise was reached. A much smaller project, but still gargantuan. Uh, and a lot of the groups that had opposed them supported it. And some of the civic groups did because you're going to get a nice park and various other things. And most of the other, I was a state assemblyman at the time, and most of the other legislators switched from opposition to support. I did not. I didn't like the compromise either. I th- you know, one man's compromise is another man's sellout, you know, depending on your viewpoint. I thought it was still terrible. And I, I then became the only legislator opposing it for a while, eventually joined by two more. Uh, and I, I continued to be one of the leaders of the opposition. Now, does, does and, anything and about that experience inform your uh, approach to the current situation? Um, not really. I mean, he was a... We knew he was uh, he was unscrupulous, but you knew that from just his general dealings in New York. In New York, uh, uh, many of the people who supported him, uh, whether they were vendors or contractors or architects, ended up opposing him politically because they didn't like the way they they were treated. Uh, they think they they didn't think they were treated fairly. But that that was really later. Um, no, I I just thought he was overbearing. 
I thought he was overbearing, and I thought he felt he could get his way no matter what because he had the immense money and the resources, and that was wrong. I should make it clear. I opposed the project for a reason that almost nobody else opposed it. Mm -hmm. Most people opposed, and that's why I didn't compromise. Most people opposed the project for all the standard reasons you oppose it. A, a giant real estate project is too big, too tall, block the sun, too many people, you know, too dense, all of which was true. I opposed it because it was built on a rail yard, which I wanted to keep operating. And I had told him when he first when he first bought the land in 1985, I told him that if he designed his project in such a way as to allow the rail yard to continue operating underneath it, and, and that could have been done because it was a 70-foot drop, then I might support his project, I might oppose it, because I didn't know what it was going to be, but I wasn't going to kill myself. But he, if he designed it in such a way as to preclude the continued operation of the rail yard, I would do everything I could to stop his project, because I thought his pro the rail yard was vital, because at that time, there were still half a million manufacturing jobs in New York City. Half of them, a quarter of a million in Manhattan below 59th Street, dependent ultimately on, on, on rail transportation, and I wanted to save those jobs. And to me, that was the issue. So do you think of that experience? And of, and of course, he designed it so it didn't save the rail yet, and that's why I, I led the opposition. And do you think of that experience as a fight with Donald Trump that you won unequivocally because it wasn't built? No, no, we didn't win. Uh, the so-called compromise, which was much too big and large, was built. Uh, the rail yard stopped. No, I don't think it is a win at all. Quite the contrary. There are some people who believe that Trump is trying to goad the Congress into impeaching him because he thinks he will get a political benefit from that. There are others who think he's just an impulsive person who acts the way he acts. I think it's largely lar more the second than the first. I think he is very impulsive. I think he's very willful. And I think he's very ignorant. I mean, it, it's, uh, unlike Richard Nixon, who knew exactly what he was doing when he was violating the law and violating norms and so forth, he just, he just goes ahead. He doesn't know what the law is. He doesn't know what the constitutional history is. Uh, he doesn't know the implications of half of what he does. Well, so do you agree with... Uh uh, Speaker Pelosi, who said the other day that he is self-impeaching by his conduct, making it impossible for you to avoid that. He's making it increasingly difficult. No questions are being answered about any subject. And then when subpoenas are issued, he has a blanket uh, command to uh, disobey all subpoenas. Nobody should testify and nobody should, should uh, give documents to Congress. Well, that's a way of neutering Congress of making sure Congress can't do its job, of, make it, of turning the, the country into a dictatorship, of, 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 a, of a monarchical president. That's why you call it a constitutional crisis. Yes. He ridiculed that idea, said that you guys were just putting on a show and rallying your political base. How do you advance your position, which is an abstraction, constitutional crisis, people can't see it, when the president says 3.2% economic growth in the first quarter, what are you talking about? I'm making people's lives better. The idea but of a constitutional crisis is not something people can see, feel, or touch. That's right. But, you know, we fought a, we fought a, a, a revolutionary war over that. It affects people's lives ultimately. And the fact, I mean, whether the president is doing a good job on the economy or not is one question. He may be. But if he is destroying all the norms and destroying all the practices and destroying the laws and arrogating all power to the presidency so that 
the people through Congress have nothing to say, that's a very different crisis. That's a constitutional Is that an argument that you can uh, make the American people see and understand and accept? I think so. I mean, we have to hold hearings and we have to get people to testify, and not just on, you know, collusion with the Russians and obstruction of justice, but on all kinds of issues where, they, where they're refusing to... We can't get information uh, about the family separation policy of the board about tearing kids out of people's arms. If there's a larger issue about him and his conduct, what is it? Well, you got three issues, really. But there were tons of evidence that they knew the Russians were interfering in the election on their behalf. They welcomed it, they wanted it, and they tried, and they coordinated with it. And the second clear conclusion is there are 12, 12 episodes of obstruction of justice. Despite Bill Barr saying over and over, well, Bill no Barr is just a liar. Um, and, 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 he, and he's just representing the president. And, and I mean, when, when he put out his interpretation of the report and then kept it from everybody for four, four, for four weeks so that it could come into effect, you saw that. You actually think Bill Barr is just lying uh, as opposed to being a uh, defender of the well, person not, who put I, him in I, I'm, I'm the not attorney sure. general. I'm not sure of what his motive is. Um, you could have two interpretations of Bill Barr's motives. One, the less charitable interpretation, is he's doing whatever he has to do to protect the president personally. Uh, he'll hide whatever he has to hide. He'll misrepresent. We know he misrepresented. Uh, lied may be too strong a word, but he certainly misrepresented very strongly what was in the report. Um, and one interpretation is he's doing that to protect the president. That's why he's there. Different interpretation. And that's why he wrote that 19-page memo auditioning for the job. More charitable interpretation is that he simply believes in the so-called unitary theory of government, in this tyrannical theory that the president uh, can never, any president, cannot obstruct justice, that as long as he believes that he didn't do anything wrong, he can stop an investigation, which is a terrible doctrine because it would mean, it would mean that you can't investigate a president mm -hmm. for doing anything. And that uh, he wrote this 19-page memo to vindicate that point of view and that he is acting now to protect that point of view. Basically, the point of view being that the president should be a monarch. Which of those two which is very dangerous. do you uh, believe? I don't know. Mm -hmm. One is, but they're both dangerous. One would have him being very dishonest. The other would have him being honest, but very dangerous to the republic. I mean, to accept that view, assuming he holds it, and he's pushing that view, whether he holds it sincerely or not, I don't, I assume he does. But to accept that view, no matter how sincerely held, is to accept a president as a dictator and to change the form of government of this country. Beyond all that is the basic question, uh, because the administration doesn't want this information, because they want all information kept, they are refusing all subpoenas. They're telling private parties don't, don't uh, uh, give information to Congress. They're trying to say that Congress, representing the American people, can't get information and therefore can't function. Uh, they, uh, the effect of that, whether the president realizes it or not, I don't know, but the effect of that is to make the president uh, a monarch, it's to make him a dictator. That, that is the biggest constitutional crisis, and that's what we've got to fight. How that's confident are you that your side of that argument is going to prevail? 
I don't know. Don't know. I think to a large extent, it probably will, uh, because I think the courts will, I mean, one of the problems is that every time we try to enforce a subpoena, it's going to go to court, and they're going to try to run out the clock. And they may succeed. And the fact is we need stronger ways of enforcing congressional subpoenas, uh, some of which would take congressional action to change the law, which the Republicans won't do in the Senate. But I'm thinking beyond this president, too. So even if they run out the clock on a lot of it, the law, the courts will decide against the president in most of these things. Because e the, even though the Supreme Court is a majority, has a conservative majority? Yeah, because it's not a question of conservative. Unless you say it's not a conservative majority, but it's a partisan, dishonest majority. If it's, if it's not, if it's, an, if it's a conservative, honest majority, that is, they're acting on, on ideological considerations, on legal considerations, not on let's do whatever the president wants, he's going to lose. Do you believe it is? I hope it is. But what do you I think? I suspect it is. I suspect that uh, you, you certainly have four judges there on who will do the right thing, and Roberts, I assume, will probably do the right thing. He's a very conservative judge, but he, he seems to be an honest one. Uh, I don't know about some of the others, but I suspect you have. I mean, again, you look at uh, the Nixon court. On the Nixon case of Nixon versus, or U.S. versus Nixon, uh, the tapes case, there was the strongest possible assertion of executive privilege. These, this, these were tapes of the president talking to his advisors and getting advice from them. The strongest possible case for keeping it quiet so the president gets on his advice, which is the germ, the, the, the essence of executive privilege. And the court ruled eight to nothing that it had to be made public, it had to be given to Congress because executive privilege couldn't shield wrongdoing. Given that, for, for a court now to go, to, to, to do an end, to say no, all of this evidence possibly of wrongdoing, of whatever, yields to very tenuous claims of executive privilege. I mean, uh, the Mueller report, the redacted versions of the Mueller report, the, the uh, uh, grand jury evidence aside, we have an argument, a real argument. That aside, there is no real executive privilege argument for any of that. The president just asserts it uh, or, or claims it, very attenuated. So I think we will win. Uh, ultimately, all these subpoenas will win in court. Uh, it may be the problem is it may be too late for now, maybe too late to act on the president, which is a, a real problem, but it will vindicate the rights going forward. And after, after he's no longer president, hopefully we'll get Republicans to agree that we have to, one thing we should learn is that various norms, that is to say, everybody does this or no one ever does that. Well, now he did. And we will probably have to enact them into laws. And, uh, Hopefully, once Trump is no longer the issue, we will get Republican support. Do you believe, in fact, that the president uh, is compromised by Russia? Trump was saying throughout the campaign, I have no dealings in Russia, they have no, no dealings of, of whatever kind. We now know that, in fact, they were negotiating for Trump Tower Moscow right till the end of the campaign. Okay, Putin knew this. Putin knew that they were having these negotiations. He knew that Trump was lying to the American people about it. And that gave him leverage because he could have revealed, revealed that during the campaign. 
Okay, whether, whether there is leverage now, I don't know. There was a poll that was done recently in which a solid majority of Americans said they believed that before he was president, President Trump committed crimes. Are you one of the people before who... Before he was president? Before he was president, committed crimes. Are you one of the people who believes that? He may have, I don't know. I just think, well, he admitted... Is that relevant to uh, that, that belief in the period that led to the presidency? Is that well, relevant? A president can be impeached only for two things. Only for misuse of presidential power while president or for cheating in the election mm -hmm. that gave him the presidency. Other than that, if he did something terrible before he was president, he robbed a bank, that's not impeachable. It's a crime, it's not impeachable. There may be crimes that are not impeachable, and impeachable offenses don't have to be crimes. They're different tests. It's not that one is more severe than the other, they're simply different tests. Um, so, for example, um, I said it at the time, and I'll say it again now. I believe that uh, perjury regarding a private sexual affair by the president is a crime, but it's not an impeachable offense because it doesn't threaten the structure of government, it doesn't aggregatize power, etc. So if Donald Trump, for instance, committed perjury about some real estate deal in Manhattan, that would not be an impeachable offense. Do you believe but he's committed crimes while in office? Yeah. Yes, I do believe that. You he, do believe he's committed crimes yes, while I do. in office? I do believe. Uh, Mueller lays out very strong evidence of a uh, number of obstructions of justice. Those are crimes. Yes, of course he did. And I wonder, in the case of your party, if the larger idea is that uh, uh, Democrats think that Donald Trump is a con man and that uh, they are justified in finding ways to, uh, grounds to get a con man out of I don't know what anybody else may think, but I would, I would have very much opposed that point of view. Donald Trump is a con man. He's thoroughly dishonest. He lies all the time. We know that. None of those are grounds for impeachment. Uh, they're grounds for defeating him for re-election. Mm -hmm. They're grounds for why he shouldn't have been elected in the first place, but that's up to the American people. Uh, impeachment is a weapon or a tool to protect the functioning and in, of government and to protect liberty and to protect the structure of government. When you say the question of impeachment is down the road, um, which your colleagues say and Speaker Pelosi says as well, does no, it need no. to be this calendar year or not at all? When I say it's down the road, I don't mean just in terms of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends what, what comes out. Yeah. It depends what we learn. Depends where the American people are as to whether we want to go that way or not. I don't want to make it sound as if we're heading for impeachment. Yeah. Probably we're not. You really believe that? Probably we're not? Probably, but I don't know. Yeah. I say, I should Because what I hear from your colleagues is the reverse. Probably we are, but not yet. Maybe. It's hard. I don't know. I had lunch the other day with Bill Cohen, who, as you know, was a young yes. congressman mm -hmm. uh, during the, the Nixon the impeachment process. Yes. He said that he thinks that Trump deserves impeachment and that, in fact, the, what we're seeing now from Trump and his administration are worse than anything Nixon ever did. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Nixon never... never posed the kind of existential challenge to the separation of powers and to limited government that, that, that Trump does. President Trump and uh, some conservatives 
uh, Republicans say that the uh, the media, the uh, social media companies, the deep state are suppressing or constraining the civil liberties of conservatives or Republicans or President Trump? Well, I think it's nonsense. Do I believe that what we're doing is supporting civil liberties? Yes. I mean, they're going off on nonsensical quests. Uh, Lindsey Graham and, uh, and uh, Jordan, uh, you know, what's the origin of the investigation? Did it start with the Steele dossier? We know what the origin did. It wasn't, it wasn't the Steele dossier and so forth. And even, by the way, if the origin wasn't good, which it was, but even if it hadn't been, look what it found. It found, and that's the issue, what it found. And it found the Russians making a concerted effort to, to, to rig an American election and various people in the United States supporting that and then trying to cover it up. That's the issue. Lessons from Peter Rodino or Henry Hyde? Yeah, I don't remember in detail about Rodino, except he was... He presided with dignity and fairness, and he was reluctant to do it. In fact, the story is that uh, when the committee voted to impeach the president, he went into his office and cried, even though he had helped engineer the vote. Uh, that happens? Are you going to go in your office and cry? I don't think I'll cry, not that emotional, but no. no. What I'm looking for is, I mean, he was crying presumably that it was necessary. Right. If it is necessary, you've got to do it. We have to protect the Constitution and protect uh, a democratic form of government. That is overwhelming. What about Henry If we Hyde? succeed in doing that, maybe I'll cry out of happiness. But not, not you know. Uh, Henry Hyde, I think he lost perspective. Now, one thing you said during that impeachment process was that uh, an impeachment lacks legitimate legitimacy if it's done by only one party. If you have no Republican uh, member of Congress supporting it, does that mean it can't happen? When you start the inquiry, you know what the evidence is, or you should know enough of the evidence, otherwise you shouldn't start the inquiry. But if you think that the evidence is so stark about deeds so terrible, that by the end of the inquiry, when it's laid out, then you'll have some Republican support unimpeachable, then you can do it. Are you concerned with, and should you be concerned with, the electoral impact of what you're doing? If you're going to do anything, you need the votes of people from districts not like mine, as well as mine, so obviously you have to take account of it. But again, the ultimate measuring rod is saving, is saving, the, the, is saving liberty. What about financial impacts? Your district encompasses Wall Street. Mm -hmm. If you thought that a, the turmoil of an impeachment process was going to be damaging to the American economy. Would that be a reason to shy away from it? The American economy is very large and very resilient. But number two, no, that would not be a reason. Uh, I suppose if you thought it was going to cause a major depression like the 30s, you'd have to think of that, but, but that's not, not real. Would censure of the president be an effective remedy for a constitutional crisis or violation as you would see it? I don't know. Uh, I'm skeptical personally of censure. Why? Because I don't know that it means much anymore. It was done once in American history when Andrew Jackson was censured in 1830 or 31 and he then it meant something. It meant a lot. It meant so much that he was infuriated 
And uh, when the Democrats, he was a Democrat, when the Democrats took control of Congress, he made sure they expunged the censure resolution. But that was in the era of duels. That was in the era when someone insulted you, 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 you took him to a duel, you shot him and, and we hawk it. Today, I'm not sure anybody would care about a censure resolution one way or the other, they'd, they'd laugh it off. Do you think if the president were impeached by the House and acquitted by the Senate, it would boost his re-election prospects? It might very well. And would that be a reason not to do it? Be a consideration, certainly. As I listen to you and listen to other members of your party and think about how you assess the current situation, it feels to me as if politics is now the only reason for you not to impeach the president. No. Is that where we are? No. Uh, the, no. The, the major reason, certainly a major non-political reason not to impeach the president was if he thought it would tear the country apart. Do you have any autonomy in that um, decision, or is that really the speaker's call? Well, it's neither. I mean, if we were going to consider that, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would have been put into that decision. Mm -hmm. Everybody's independently elected. Everybody has to get independently re-elected. And the speaker is not a tyrant, nor does she want to be. Um, and decisions are made by, by consensus, I suppose. I mean, now, she's a, a very dominant leader. She... She gets her way a lot because she's persuasive and because she's logical in terms of what she's supporting in the first place. Uh, but she has to listen to the caucus, as, as do we all. That's it for this episode of Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The episode was produced by Jordan Malter and edited by Michael Hoyt, Tim Hurt, and Julian Aline. Oh, and by the way, leave us your feedback in the comments section. We want to hear from you. Talk soon.